welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I'm talking to Suzanne Soderberg, and she is a professor of political economy and global development studies at Queen's University, Canada. And we're talking about her book, Urban Displacements, Governing Surplus and Survival in Global Capitalism. Now, the book is about the kind of class underpinnings of the housing and displacement crisis that we're seeing all over the world, with a particular focus on renters. And Suzanne looks at this kind of cycle of rising debt, eviction and homelessness that characterizes um, just the pervasive insecurity experienced by renters who are also often in insecure jobs, who are experiencing debt and loads of other kinds of sources of insecurity. And she looks at the way in which that is kind of functional to capital accumulation, also the direct routes through which the wealthy are basically extracting resources from this group of people. And we also talk a lot about the opportunities for resistance to this model. So you can listen to the hour-long episode of the show if you subscribe to our Patreon account. I would really recommend that you do that. You can also find uh, Suzanne's social media in the description and uh, a link to purchasing her book. Please also consider sharing this episode on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram on at a world to win pod. And yeah, thank you, as always, to all our patrons. Please do consider signing up to become a patron at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. So now here is Suzanne Soderberg, and I really hope that you guys enjoy this fascinating episode. Hello and welcome to A World to Win. I'm here with Suzanne Soderberg, and we are going to talk today about her brilliant book, Urban Displacements, Governing, Surplus and Survival in Global Capitalism, and actually about the housing crisis and the global movement um, to organise tenants more generally, and how these are all linked into processes such as financialization and uh, the commodification of housing. So thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? I'm doing well, Grace. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you. So let's just start by talking a little bit about what's happened over the last couple of years for tenants, Mm -hmm. talking particularly about Europe and um, the UK and the US, because we saw, particularly in the US, actually, at the start of the pandemic, lots of analysis coming out about a massive brewing evictions crisis um, mm-hmm. and similar sorts of stuff happening where where rental markets were relatively insecure. So what's actually happened there? Um, have we seen a significant displacement of, of tenants? And if so, where are they? What has happened to this crisis? Absolutely. Great question to open with. One of the aspects in the book that I look at is very much so the housing crisis and looking more at, because we're talking about tenants, just for the listeners out there, my focus in the book is on the rental tenure, which is comprised of social or public housing. It means the same thing, I suppose, which side of the pond you're on, (laughs) and the private rental sector. And as we know, over the last several decades, the private rental sector through privatization of of, um, public housing or social housing has become a lot larger than the um, public housing component, which means as well with deregulation of of rent, you know, the removal of rent caps, for example, uh, the private rental sector has become extremely expensive 
added to which we've had this huge influx of so-called financial landlords that are, you know, private equity firms, the real estate investment trusts, etc. And a lot of times these landlords are not even, you know, in the city in which they're operating. They're, you know, in another country or another city. So they're absentee landlords in many ways. And they operate like corporations, right? I mean, shareholder value is the bottom line and not the interests of the tenants. Mm-hmm. But the rental housing sector is super important, as Grace, you've mentioned, because they the tenure from which people, especially the working poor and increasingly the middle class, are being expulsed, right? And Grace, you mentioned um, the evictions crisis. And one of the aspects that I look at in the book is the housing crisis, which is part of the eviction crisis. And I think it's really important to to sort of hold on to language here and um, dig a bit deeper into the meaning of the language, especially the political meaning of language. And when I started looking at the housing crisis before the pandemic in Europe, in Dublin, Berlin, and Vienna, we can talk about why I looked at those cities later, I realized that a lot of the analysis was going back only to only to 2008, so the great financial crisis, right? Um, mm. And why, while things have intensified, as with the pandemic, right, the crises is something, as a Marxist, is always there, right? We expect crises to be there. I mean, my good friend Leo Panich always jokes that, you know, Marx has predicted, you know, 30 of the last 25 crises. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, Engels wrote about this in the 1800s with this housing yeah. question, right? He's like, you know, there's there will always be in capitalism because the polarization of the accumulation of wealth on one pole and misery and, you know, on the other, there will always be inadequate and unaffordable housing for the working poor. It is up to the political mobilization of the working poor, right, to push for that material social basis from the state, from capitalists, in order to achieve, you know, what I write about in the book, the Red Vienna model in the 1920s, Mm. right? Um, But there, you know, we can talk about this later, but there were also exclusions um, in, in that moment, too. So what I'm getting at here is, you know, the housing crisis has always been there. We have to take that, and I take that as a given, I look historically and geographically at this housing crisis in the rental tenure, and I ask, you know, how might we understand the normalization of the rental crisis in urban centers within global capitalism? And, you know, you mentioned financial capitalism. So what's the link here between financial capitalism and this ongoing crisis, which has become absolutely, after pandemic, you know, people have been thrown out of their houses. But one thing that that is also important to sort of think about when we when you think about the housing crisis, you know, in my research, I started seeing a cycle of displacements or a, a deeper sort of understanding of displacements within this by looking at, you know, urban um, housing crisis within global capitalism. And I realized that there's this cycle that occurs that drives a vicious cycle that drives urban displacements with regard to housing insecurity. And tenants begin with rental debt rental arrears, right? They can't meet the rental payments, which then lead to evictions, which then lead to homelessness. And it's this vicious cycle that keeps going on and on. And, you know, a lot of people live this life of, of you know, the structural violence of capitalism, if you will. And I call this displaced survival for decades. You know, an entire generation will live through this awful uh, cycle of over-indebtedness, evictions, and homelessness, right? And what we're seeing in the pandemic now is just the intensification 
of this type of, of system that I trace back to the 1990s, where it starts growing in these cities, obviously not to the levels that we've seen after the 2008 crisis and after uh, the pandemic, um, or sorry, the pandemic is not over. I'm not buying this. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about the UK government, but according to the our Ontario government, the pandemic is over. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, wow. There's so much to unpack there. I've like literally written down so many questions that I want to ask you and I'm not sure where to go first. But actually, let's start with this idea of the kind of cycle of displacements, mm-hmm. kind of vicious cycle of debt, eviction and homelessness that you write about so eloquently in your book. And you mentioned there that a lot of this kind of starts with the experience of indebtedness mm-hmm. and that generates um, this kind of lived experience of displaced survival. Now, we can talk a bit about the kind of financial and and economic dynamics underpin that. But in Mm. your research, can you talk about what that actually means to live in this with this experience of displaced survival? I actually this kind of reminds me of um, not that long ago. I saw this beautiful film about the housing crisis in Dublin called Rosie, which Mm -hmm. was about a mum, you know, who had a couple of kids and who found herself out, you know, evicted basically after the financial crisis. Actually, I think she lost her a home that she owned and they were living out of their car. Um, it was all about the stress that they were under and just, you know, yep. she was trying to get her kids to school, trying to find places for them to shower, dealing with, you know, ex-husbands and like mm-hmm. all these insane stresses. So yeah, can you talk to us like about what that experience of displaced survival looks like and how I suppose it intersects with other dynamics such as yes indebtedness but also kind of class gender race mm-hmm. and yeah kind of what you um what you found when you were researching this okay i this is a great question i i just want to back up and i you know i don't want to sort of spend too much time on the abstract you know uh, marxist concepts but i think they're they're important to sort of just frame briefly and then move to a more concrete analysis mm. and one of the things that i noticed in a lot of the discussions of housing crisis uh, evictions crisis these types of tropes is that a lot of times even the more critical commentators miss exactly what you're talking about these people Right. These yeah. people we talk about finance. Everyone wants to trace, you know, the financial landlords and financialization. But, you know, Marx had this wonderful line in, in Capital Volume One where he said, you know, we have to be very, very critical of remaining within the realm of exchange. Right. Where money is exchanged from you know, credit money, debt relations, for example, or rental relations between landlord and tenant, where a lot of the you know, academic as well as the media analysis rests. And you know, be very weary of this because Marx said this realm, this is an exclusive realm of freedom, equality, property, and bedroom. Mm, we have to right? go back to the hidden realm of production, absolutely. Exactly, which you do so brilliantly in your book, Stolen. Um, Thank you. Oh, I love that book. Because it's one of the few analyses that actually take labor power seriously, right? And and really start problematizing the notion of fictitious capital. I think too many of the discussions around financialization or financial capitalism miss that. And in doing so, they miss this tension. And here's, you know, Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek uh, minister and heterodox economist, had a what, brilliant TED talk um, years ago, and he described financial capitalism, and it always stuck with me, as the twin peaks. There's a mountain of idle money and a mountain of debt, right? And what I, the sort of analogy there with, with his um, metaphor and what I'm trying to get at is there's very little discussion of the people that are living in those valleys, <laughs> 
right? Mm. Especially in class relations, right? So people talk about capital and capitalism without labor power. And I, you know, I've gone through so many academic articles as well as, you know, media pieces. And very rarely, if you look, are workers discussed, right? And so, as you say, we need the whole picture. We need not just the realm of exchange, but we need the realm of production. We need to see the class this as a class project, essentially, mm. is the argument of the book. And the normalization of these people, and I'll tell uh, a few sort of vignettes, uh, it, go over a few vignettes in a second, are very much so entangled in these, these twin peaks, right? And a mm. key player in keeping all of this going is the state. And in fact, I'll be so bold as to say that after decades of this type of housing crisis, eviction crisis, displacements, as I've, I've mentioned, cycles of, of, of over-indebtedness, evictions and homelessness, I would say that this is a new normal. This is how the under and unemployed workers who are central to financial capitalism are being disciplined. They're both disposable and, and indispensable. And Marx talks about this category as a relative surplus population. And it's really interesting because the under and unemployed workers, right, the people that are temporary jobs, self-employment, gig economy, involuntary part-time work, these are the people that are getting evicted, right? This is the mom and her daughter that you're talking about, right? And that's the other side. Yes, rents are too high, but there's not enough living or social wages out there to sustain survival of this surplus population. Mm. This, I, I just want to quickly ask you something yeah. before we, we go into trying to talk about the more concrete side of things, because there is a kind of strand of uh, of kind of liberal opinion um, mm-hmm. that looks at a lot of these problems kind of separately and says, oh, we have a problem in, say, insecure work. We have, you know, food poverty. We have housing poverty, fuel poverty. Um, we have kind of a, a housing crisis. And here are the kind of various different policies that you would need mm-hmm. to deal with those issues. And a lot of them are kind of very easy, you know, on the surface, simple fixes Mm. that you could, you know, ban zero hours contracts or change the nature of those contracts or build more social housing, right? Create Mm. jobs, do a kind of Keynesian sort of uh, approach to that. And yet we still see very little to no action on that. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's because, you know, landlords, for example, in the UK are a significant component of, uh, you know, the governing party mm-hmm. um, because these interests, you know, have a, a really significant hold over the, the government. But actually, your argument is deeper and more interesting than that, which is that, you know, it is if you think about the capitalist state as, let's say, a field of contestation and of struggle between different class interests where Mm -hmm. the interest of the ruling class can be articulated and then enforced, albeit not in kind of very deterministic ways, Mm -hmm. then you could see how a consensus would emerge within the state around the need to actually maintain these conditions to, as you say, discipline this very precarious working class, which is disproportionately composed of women, migrant workers, Mm -hmm. and keep them basically uh, in insecure housing, in insecure work, unable to organize, um, and, um, you know, yeah, kind of unable really to seek redress or uh, expect any any kind of accountability from um, the people who are kind of in control, basically, of their lives. Is that kind of too deterministic or conspiratorial an account to say that actually there are sections of, you know, the ruling class and um, the state apparatus which believe that it is, you know, necessary to maintain these conditions that we have today? Mm -hmm. I think that you're touching on something, Grace, that's really super important. And, you know, um, 
we have to see the state, as with all types of class relations, as full of contradictions. That's where we push to try to affect change. But also, um, you know, it's very dynamic. And it's really hard to put your finger on one particular aspect. The state, as you say, is this huge social relation of struggle. It's uneven. And, you know, in the book, I look at various scales of state intervention from the urban scale to the national scale to the EU scale of how this is being normalized and legitimated. But one thing I think, you know, sort of invoking neoliberalism all the time and deregulation and privatization and marketization, which are very, very important, right, is what David Harvey talks about in terms of a crisis. It's not just temporary. It's not just a, a, a disruption, but there are important mechanisms and uh, processes and relations of power that you describe that are constantly imposing rationality and order into the system, right? And mm-hmm. one of those is this, and here I'm good because you mentioned the sort of more liberal debates. There's two dominant debates out there in terms of policy. And one is I call waiting for an equilibrium. And we've all heard this, right? Housing for all, we can, we, you know, if we just let the markets do their thing and the state steps back and does their right thing, we'll have the supply and demand will equilibrate, right? The supply of affordable, adequate housing for the demand, right? And, you know, we're still waiting for this since the 1990s. But the governments at all scales of intervention, right, from, from urban to the EU to, you know, are, are talking about this housing for all, right? And all we need to do is incentivize the capitalists by giving them tax relief um, <laughs> to give them, you know, low yeah. interest loans and give them public land, right? I mean, you have mm. this wonderful podcast about trespass. I mean, this is all part of this this whole, right, the privatizations of the commons, right? And we've yeah. been waiting and waiting. But at the same time, Grace, the power of capitalists have become stronger and stronger and stronger because of this, right, shift of, you know, Harvey talks about the social surplus, right? The um, public funds, public money that has been expropriated from the capitalists, their profit, right, through taxation, for example, and uh, redistributed. And, you know, before the 1970s, the redistribution went to working class, middle class folks, right? But since then, it's been redistributed primarily to the wealthy and, and capitalists, right? And we can see this within the housing sector as well as well as the um the the gig economy right look we have to also look at what's in dublin what's in in vienna and what's in berlin what's what's keeping these these um economies going the mode of production right and there is a production in the service sector people are producing services right and if we keep an eye on that it becomes really interesting to see the sort of how these these relative surplus populations, workers and slash tenants, are very much so holding up these twin peaks, right? Mm. And I just sort of want to back up because the surplus population, and we're going to get into the over-indebtedness, the cycles of dispossession, but the surplus populations, as Marx talked about, are really, really important for a couple of reasons. One is they depress the wages of those in work. Yeah. Secondly, they create fragmentations amongst the working class, especially, as you mentioned, amongst racialized lives. And we see this hugely in places like, you know, Dublin, but as well in Berlin with the influx of refugees in the 2000, 2015 and now a new influx of refugees, which are for the most part going to be part of this relative surplus population. But they also the second thing that the relative surplus population allow is a super exploitation, Right. Mm. And, um, you know, we have stories of Roma migrants, for example, you know, working for three, you know, cleaning hotel rooms for, you know, one year a room, right, where the other, you know, more unionized um, workers 
if they're lucky, we're being paid a lot more than that, right? And the third, and this is where we get into the over-indebtedness, is their sites of accumulation, right? If they can't pay their debt, their rent, they go and they go into debt, right? To make those rental payments. They work harder, right? Any job will do. So mm. there, there's already this built-in silent compulsions to discipline within the capital relation, not in you know an automatic structural deterministic way, but in a way that, you know. The class relation operates right now within financial capitalism. And this is this dark side of the valleys that are very much so attached to those twin peaks and keep them growing and growing and growing. Um, and that's really fascinating. But I did you want me to discuss some of the examples of displacement? Yeah. Yeah, okay. that'd be great. Because as you said, you had these really interesting kind of case studies and empirical mm-hmm. work looking at how this crisis was manifesting itself in these three different cities, which I think, you know. These three cities, so Dublin, Vienna and Berlin, are Mm -hmm. often kind of cities that we would think about when having these conversations, right? Dublin is an example of like financialization, run amok, real estate investment trusts, you know, massive eviction crisis, extremely high rents. Mm -hmm. Vienna is an example of, as you said, Red Vienna, you know, this incredible model of social housing, even in a relatively right wing country. And then Mm -hmm. Berlin is this exciting new terrain of organizing to Mm -hmm. push back against some of this stuff. So yeah, if you could talk a little bit about each of those, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the key aspects that I find really interesting in all of this is the similarities between these three countries. Now, clearly they're different, right? Dublin is a liberal democracy. It's very much so embraced the neoliberal model. You know, it was a site of a hotspot of the financial crisis of 2008, and yet is now registering some of the highest GDP growth rates in all of Europe, at the same time registering incredibly high homelessness rates, um, especially amongst um, families. So that's quite interesting as well, that, that contrast. And Berlin and Vienna are also interesting because they're renter cities. So the rental tenure in each city is about 85%. Berlin is the powerhouse of Europe, right? It's one of the most you know, economically wealthy countries in the world. Um, and yet it's also known as the homeless capital of Germany. So again, attention a there. And Vienna is... Of course, interesting, as you mentioned, the housing is known as for its housing model from the Red Vienna, the social democratic days of of Red Vienna. But yet it's registering. Last I spoke in terms of, you know, post pandemic or sorry, I shouldn't say that I misspoke. The pandemic. I know, I say that all the time. It's easy to get around. Post lockdown, shall we say. Exactly. You know, rose 38% in terms of homelessness. And what's Mm. also interesting across these three spaces is that there's, as I mentioned, so many similarities. And I'll just sort of walk through some of these cycles of over indebtedness, evictions, and homelessness. So in Berlin, I look at, there's 12 boroughs in Berlin. It's a big city. And the borough that I look at, or the district, is Neukölln. And Neukölln has been known, it's, very, it's been very stigmatized um, since the 1990s because, again, racial and class elements of Roma sort of coming into the borough, the, the traditional working class Germans leaving, and then, you know, all these migrants, especially, you know, racialized migrants moving in. And of course, the landlords taking full advantage of these racialized migrants by, you know, increasing rental rates. A lot of these migrants... There's about um, 43% of people living in Neukölln with a migrant background, and the majority of them live in social housing and on the streets. And they are, in many ways, because uh, there's different segments. I mean, there's people, obviously, that are 
informally there. So they're not registered with the state. So they don't receive housing allowance and unemployment insurance, et cetera, benefits. But um, I'm discussing now the people that are connected to the state in the book, right? Through long-term unemployment or um, underemployment. And 43% of the people in North Carolina are migrants, have a migrant background. About 20% of these people are unemployed and largely long-term unemployed. So over a year, they receive payments from the um, the job center, the federal government. But these these you know through the workfare regimes, right? They need to work, so they're they're meager payments, and they need to enter into you know these top up mini jobs, if you will. And it's it's really difficult. They still can't make ends meet with all of this, even with government assistance. At the same time, even in social housing, because you know Berlin has embraced this marketized view that we need to manage our rents in terms of you know staying in the black, and that's fine. But they they cannot afford their rent, right? So they enter into debt because they have insufficient wages, they have insufficient social wages from the government. At the same time, rent is increasing even within social housing. So there has been um, many studies that have shown over the last couple of decades that the social housing units in Berlin have increased their rent higher than the private rental sector. And this is going to be important when we discuss later alternatives, which, you know, people have been pushing for rental caps, but those rental caps, for example, only apply to private rental sector. Right. So people go into debt. These people, you know, enter into credit card debt. They they enter into overdraft. And unfortunately, and due to the structures, of course, the structures of debt repayment, they end up paying and, pri- and prioritizing these debt repayments over their rent. There's a lot of for some reason. Maybe it's a hangover from pre neoliberal days, but they believe that, you know, I'm living in my house, it's secure. No one can take that away. So I'm going to prioritize, you know, my cell phone bill, my electricity bill, et cetera. And then they enter into rental arrears. So once they enter into rental arrears in Germany, in Neukölln, in Berlin, they go to the job center. And the job center has. 17 people in Neukron that work these files of rental arrears. They work them slowly. There's something like 53 documents that people have to bring to the job center wow. in order to get the money to, to basically pay off their, their rental debt to the landlord so that they don't get evicted. The acceptance rate of these, these rental payments, right, um, or, or rental assistance payments from the job center are quite low. So the eviction ensues. And the evictions are really interesting because it's not just formal evictions that are occurring. You know, there's something like 5,000 evictions, probably even more now um, in the post-lockdown era. But a lot of the evictions are what I call self-expulsions or informal evictions, right? The tenant receives a notice on their door. The legal language is so intimidating. They decide they're just going to leave, pack up their, their belongings and leave. And for the most part, they can't go to a homeless shelter because they're completely full. And there's not enough homeless shelters in Germany, uh, in Berlin and Germany um, as a whole. And so they move in with friends, right? Or they move to the, they, they enter into rough sleeping, Right. And and that's a, a really, really um, unfortunate aspect of it. And I should mention within Berlin, if they are lucky to go to the social welfare office, so they've been, they've, you know, 
been evicted either formally or informally and they move to the social, they, they knock on the social welfare office, the social welfare office will give them a voucher of, you know, 60 euro or something to find a hotel or hostel to live in. But they're going to have to keep going back to that social welfare office in order to keep getting vouchers to survive in these hotels and hostels. Note commercialized spaces of survival, right? And this plays itself out in all three cities. This plays itself out in, in the UK and Canada and the US as well, that the homeless shelters are really hotels and, and hostels. And hotels and hostels are huge um, components of the the cycles of over-indebtedness. So we have, right, uh, the cycles of displacement. And before I I move to Vienna, I just want to give you an example of where we're at in terms of homelessness and a key demographic in terms of the relative surplus population in Berlin. And that is refugees. So in 2015, uh, Germany or Berlin received 55,001 refugees. Yes, that one was counted. <laughs> I love the German mind. And, and you know, they didn't know where to put these refugees because they were already suffering the so-called housing crisis, right? So these refugees entered into a context of heightened urban displacement already, right? And they were put in all kinds of emergency shelters that were supposed to shut down after a year, but stayed in place for several years to the point that an interview I had with one of the job centers in Berlin, in Mitte, which is another uh, key uh, district of impoverishment and displacement, they were telling me that they were paying a for-profit emergency shelter, for-profit private emergency shelter, their rent for the refugees. So the refugee was already cleared through the paperwork and was able to receive benefits from the federal government, but couldn't find a place to live. So they were still living in, you know, an airport hangar in a bed, <laughs> you know, these these sort of, you know, we all see these horrific pictures. And the federal government was subsidizing this emergency shelter, which happened to be, and, and a lot of them were, a for-profit private organization. And, you know, this is, this is a landlord-tenant relationship as well, right? And a lot of the people, homeless organizations in Berlin, as in Vienna, have told me that you know that the largest segment of homelessness people or homeless people in Berlin are refugees now. So you know it, it's super interesting to to see how this all works. But you know when mm-hmm. when I looked at and I discussed this sort of marketization of homeless shelters as hotels and hostels, it's interesting because oh, this is really super new and it it is contemporarily in a contemporary sense quite new if you're looking at you know the last 40 years or so but Vienna had, has this category of housing they call it very social housing which is quite odd very social housing <laughs> and their very social housing is exactly that it's it's you know during uh, World War II they had rented out beds right and Marx mm-hmm. talked about this too right the worker would go to the factory and sleep you know rent a bed for his, you know, come back and, and, you know, sleep during, you know, whatever, after a shift to go back and to work. And that also brings us to the point that housing is so important, right? It's such a place of survival. It's a place of social reproduction of labor power, right? They have mm-hmm. to come home to someplace in order to replenish, to go and get exploited the next day, right? Which makes this all really interesting in terms of understanding how these so-called shadow housing um, are playing this massive role in reproducing 
these under and un unemployed workers that are so necessary for financial capitalism. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's not just the case that, okay, we're, we're living in, you know, a capitalist world system, there are these twin peaks of a, a big surplus of, uh, of idle money on the one hand and debt on the other hand. It's actually the case that those two things are two sides of the same coin. So the wealth of owners uh, is mm -hmm. premised upon the dispossession of workers. Now, mm -hmm. this obviously comes in a lot of different ways. Firstly, obviously, through direct exploitation. So the fact that many of these very wealthy people are making money in one way or another from the exploitation of, of workers somewhere in their in that value chain mm -hmm. being, you know, underpaid for, for, um, for their labor power. But also, there is this much more direct relationship of these people are in lots of debt. They mm -hmm. are generally in debt that they have to pay extremely high rates of interest. Those interest payments go up to owners. They are renting properties, generally owned by the wealthy, paying rent to the wealthy out of mm -hmm. salaries that they are being paid by the wealthy that are not enough to allow them to survive. Mm -hmm. They're often also, you know, if you think about the relative tax burdens on these two groups, it's often mm -hmm. actually the case that many working class people who are barely earning any money are going to be paying more tax than those at the very top because they've found out ways to kind of minimize their tax burden. Absolutely. So in so many ways, these two twin peaks are two sides of the same coin. And mm -hmm. I guess that is what we need to be showing, right? It's not just the case that you have kind of poor people that we need to feel sorry for and rich people that we should be kind of admiring and encouraging to create jobs. Actually, we wouldn't have this situation if we, you know, we wouldn't have the this kind of big divide between rich and poor if the system was kind of managed better because the poverty of the these kind of surplus populations of these displaced people is a direct corollary of the wealth of everyone else. And I wonder how much awareness of that there is, because what you were just talking about, these the marketization of homelessness shelters, that is a very obvious example of that dynamic, right? Oh my gosh. It's obvious. It, to go to the Dublin case, I was reminded of these crazy numbers of <laughs> so the social housing system in, in Dublin is now in reality the private rental sector through all types of, of restriction, there's very little social slash public housing left in Dublin. So when people present themselves as homeless, largely families, they're on a waiting list and they're, they're on that wait list to be then rehoused in the same private rental sector from which they were expulsed. And we see a lot of, you know, I talked about the social surplus, you know, public money being distributed then to directly to the private rental sector. Mm. So what is what how is this being normalized? Here's here's some some numbers for you. And just generally because I forget the exact numbers, but here they are. In 2017, Dublin City Council paid hotels and hostels something like 98 euro um, million euro wow. for to house the homeless. Um, like this, exactly the, the situation with Rosie, the, the mm. video that you were talking about. I mean, these people are living there not just for, for days um, or weeks, but for years, right? Because they mm. can't access the private rental sector because the type of money, the amount of money that the Dublin City Council is giving them is too, you know, not enough in order to pay that rent, right? And plus, there's this whole idea of stigmatization, which we should talk about as well, which is part of the reproduction of this whole situation and, and disempowerment, right? I think there's something really important in terms of money that's not theorized in, in, in the financialization debates and in the media, et cetera, is that social power of money. 
And that social mm. power of money is, 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 is potent, right? Not just for the financial capitalists and the landlords, et cetera, but this indirect, Mark talk, Mark's talked about indirect exploitation or secondary exploitation when it, when, in, in terms of, of money, right? When, when you take out a loan, for example, you are being exploited, but it's less visible. That you know, if your employer is you know hanging over your shoulder and, and trying to you know make you work harder and longer, it's quite different. And there's a lot of individualized right shame and guilt that is in the system. Right, you're you owe all this money. How could you you know you need to pay this back? You need to work harder. And if you don't, then you're lazy. You don't know how to manage your money, right? And so when Rosie you know, goes to present, you know, her her housing assistance program voucher, for example, to look for a private rental housing unit. It's number one, too low to meet the new rent, which is just skyrocketing in Dublin, as we know, elsewhere. And she's stigmatized. I mean, a landlord's not going to, why would you choose a tenant that was, you know, evicted over a tenant that has not been evicted, it has this wonderful credit rating, you know, et cetera, and so forth. And there's this huge stigmatization at play here that is also a class project, right? Not just along gender lines, although a lot of lone women in Dublin, as well as the others, uh, other cities are, lone mothers, sorry, are very much at the forefront of those being displaced, but also racialized stigmatizations of these people that that for the most part you know in berlin if you if you look at you know the whole the entire way that the german economy has been developed over you know since the 1980s i mean it's it's has one of the highest low wage work levels in the eu and a lot of people that hold those jobs are migrants and racialized migrants right so it's easy to you know when i think of race um, you know cedric robinson's book of, of racial capitalism it's it's you know the fragmentation and the hierarchicalization of workers is constantly at play here which you know look you you, you just got thrown out of your house because you're you just not working hard enough right you know you're living off our taxpayers money which is crazy because you know i don't sorry i don't know if i told you the numbers that the Dublin City Council is paying these hotels. But, you know, in, in 2017, it was 98 euro as a, a million euro. In 2020, it was 200 million euro. So each year, it just increases and increases and increases. And that's published in the Irish Times. Like that's, you know, common knowledge. Mm. But it's being interpreted as, oh, look, what, you know, we have to pay for these people living in these lavish hotels. Yeah, you know it's it's wow. it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I was speaking to um, a amazing homeless organization in Dublin, and the stories that these people, these families, have to endure living in these hotels are just horrific. Grace, I mean, they're asked to come through the back door, um, not the front. Uh, they every time there's an event in town, they have to pack up their belongings and leave. Um, it's ripped families apart. I mean, I don't know if you've ever stayed in a hotel with your family for an extended period of time, but it's not mm. fun. Yeah. <laughs> Living in one room is not fun. You can't cook. You know, there's different age groups of the kids. So, you know, somebody's doing homework and somebody's watching TV and everyone has to go to bed at a particular time. A lot of times the parents are in shift work, etc. So it's it's horrific and it's, it wears people down for resistance, mm. right? 
before talking about how unsustainable this model is, as you've just kind of alluded to, like it wears people down, it is kind of undermining the social reproduction of labor power. Let's talk a bit about organizing. Because obviously, you've mentioned Engels a few times. um, And Engels, when he wrote about the housing question, saw a potential terrain, I suppose, of struggle that uh, working people could, um, could organize within as tenants. And there's been some questions here around, well, you know, do tenants constitute this, this group that has a kind of aligned set of material interests, and also the capacity to kind of come together and resist their, uh, their oppression within the housing sector. And maybe that, you know, historically, a lot of the victories that we saw when it came to housing came through the labor movement itself, right? So through mm-hmm. workers organizing as workers. But today, we've also seen the emergence of this kind of tenants movement, which is less often workers organizing as workers in their workplaces or kind of in relation to the state. And it's often um, groups like ACORN, you know, Berlin tenants organizations that are, yes, directing some of their activities towards the state, but also towards corporate landlords. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the US, for example, against groups like Blackstone um, and against landlords themselves, often just individual landlords. So in the UK, for example, ACORN will take up tenants cases and and fight them on their behalf. So Mm -hmm. do you think that we are seeing the emergence of a kind of relatively coherent tenants movement and yeah, how can we kind of create or encourage the conditions for that to to thrive? That's a great question. I definitely see, I mean, there's always pushback and activism and repossession of buildings. Uh, We see this a lot in Southern Europe, for example. There's a lot of great examples in Portugal, for example, where people are living in former and abandoned social housing units. Um, and because, you know, they don't live through our winters, um, they're able, and it's not wonderful, but they're able to, you know, reclaim these. And there's a whole, uh, the importance with that is that there's a whole political empowerment and movement going on with that. So on one hand, I think it's fragmented because I think, you know, each sort of uh, city, I said there's similarities, but there's also a lot of differences in terms of organization, et cetera, as always. But there is also a, an overall, I think, solidarity that is emerging across middle class and working class lines in uh, North America and Europe. I'm here, I'm thinking of the urban agenda movement in, in the EU, which has it sort of radical, like every movement has its more radical sections um, to it. But there's also a more liberal section, which I'm less comfortable with. And I think we've all heard this slogan, housing is a commodity and not a human right. And while I closer to that sentiment than waiting for the equilibrium position that is this dominant economic framing and reframing of the so-called housing crisis and eviction crisis. I think there's problems with seeing housing as a commodity and not a human right. I mean, housing has always been a commodity, as we've talked about, and commodities live inside housing as well, right? Labor power. But housing has always been a commodity in the sense that it has it's a place of survival and a site of accumulation. Depending historically, that sort of tension was alleviated in favor of the working class or, you know, obviously it's not now, but to treat it simply as a, as, you know, a a battering around that housing is a human right and we need to reclaim this is also something that we need to be suspicious of because housing as a human right has been enshrined to the UN Declaration of Human Rights since 1966, right? A lot of countries have embraced um, housing as a human right and yet nothing has happened. So I think, these organizations need to be more critical of the fact that 
affordable housing and adequate housing is something that needs to be struggled with within the contradictions and power relations of capitalism. I think we need to bring back the class relation and see this in terms of a class struggle, right? Mm. With very much so racialized and and gendered um, dimensions to it. But I think that that's something that I feel is missing in a lot of the movements. I mean, you know, you mentioned Berlin. The expropriation movement is huge, right? Um, of people that don't, don't know what this is, um, the Berlin, a lot of tenants organizations in Berlin have pushed over the last several uh, years to hold a referendum in Germany, in the German constitution under Article 15, through the process of a popular, you know, a referendum, you can expropriate means of production, housing, etc., from the private sector, which is quite unique and interesting. And so they're exploiting this loophole. And for the expropriation movement, they said, look, you know, any landlord that holds more than 300,000 flats, the, the Berlin state needs to expropriate. You know, we need to bring this back under social housing. And the movement had some had some thrust and, you know, the with the elections, the federal elections, the last federal elections, and of course that that hit also the Berlin Senate, um, which is the Berlin government. You know, the mayor, everyone promised, the Social Democrats, the left to Die Linke, uh, promised to, you know, hold this referendum and and, you know, see it through. But it's just caught up in all these legal loopholes and this compromise with, no, we'll build more houses, right? Go back to that waiting for an equilibrium model that I talked about earlier. We'll build more houses. It's fine, right? But they're not. And they're just really holding up this expropriation movement through state power, right? And I think that one of the weaknesses of the expropriation movements, for me at least, is, you know, again, you know, I talked about how social housing in, in Berlin has become incredibly marketized, right? It's that sort of, well, we're not going to look at the fact that social housing itself has, you know, undergone this entire, you know, commercialization uh, processes and that they need to be restructured themselves. I think we need to be more aware of of the class power structures behind these type of of solutions in order to really push them through. And, you know, if the expropriation movement, for example, use words like language, we opened up with language, this is a class relation, right? I mean, bring it back to that. I'm not saying we have to go back to old working class trade union organizations, although that's not a bad thing. I understand that the world has changed since then, right? But I, I don't understand why class struggle is not forefront of, of these type of, of tenant initiatives, right? And I think that is largely because they are very much so, you know, sorry, still caught in the freedom, equality, uh, prosperity, yes. uh, property and Bentham realm of exchange. I mean, you know, 1% of, you know, of, of the EU, 1% accumulated 17% of the income growth in the EU over the last, you know, several decades. This is huge. I mean, if class isn't facing us right now in the, you know, what is? So, yeah, use tenant or, you know, use the fact that, you know, there's all different types of identities and interests. But at heart, we're dealing with a class relation. That is a, a really good place to finish our conversation. And I think we could go on talking about this for so, like so much longer, but we've already run over time. So I will have to just stop us there. But do make sure that you follow Suzanne on Twitter and on social media. I'll put those links in the description and also get her book, Urban Displacements, Governing Surplus and Survival in Global Capitalism. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Suzanne. Thank you, Grace. <laughs>